Good morning, wonderful people, and welcome to the Black Pill Radio Show. I'm your host, Mr. Tyler, and today we have a wonderful topic. We are talking with artists, creators, filmmakers, um, and we're also talking about why it's important for black people to own and control their own films, their own media. So I'm going to have the panel introduce themselves, and then we're going to go right into the discussion. Um, Eric, can you introduce yourself? Hello, this is Eric. Director for Makeup and Breakup web series on YouTube. And Sasha? Hi, I'm Sasha. I'm the screenwriter director for um, the web series Basic to Bougie. And Danielle? Hello, my name is B. Danielle Watkins. I'm the writer, creator, and star of the new Reverie original series 3030, as well as the writer of the YouTube um, web series Girls Just Don't Do That. Excellent. And last but not least, Brandon? Hi, I'm Brandon Harrison, the writer and director of the show Bad Web Series and DC Yuppies on YouTube. Great. So I want to throw the first question to Danielle. My question to you is, why is it important for us as black people to own and control our own film production companies? Why must we control, own our own media, our own film production, our own web series? To be honest, I started my production company because there was so much out there that didn't represent me. So in order for us to fulfill that, we have to do it ourselves because there's so many walls blocking us and stopping us from being who we really are and who we think we should see. So that's the only reason I even started my production company and I went as hard as I did because I knew it was important for me to be seen as I am on screen. Okay, and we're we're going to get into that as well. So Brandon, why was it important for you to start your own film production company? But jumping right into the film, um, I just when I looked on when I looked online, I would watch a lot of web series and I saw a lot of things that I wanted to do, a lot of ideas. Or it made me excited, it made me interested. Um, and like Daniel said, um, when I was when I was starting, I was putting my ideas together. I didn't see um, a company that was in the DMV that you know went with the ideas that I had or had the same vision that I shared. So I think that it was important for me to put my own company together so that I can make sure the stories that I wanted were represented in the way that I wanted them to be portrayed or visually. So that's why um, I went the route of starting my own rather than going under somebody that was already established. So Eric, I heard Danielle and Brandon talk about why it was important for them to start their own production companies. But in terms of our people, our communities, why is it important for our communities to start our own film and production companies? Um, me um, specifically, I work in television, um, work for a network on the, um, the digital side. Um, so what I started noticing is that a lot of times my peers would have these amazing ideas and they would get discouraged because when they would go to pitch, um, it wasn't room for them to pitch. Like they, they weren't getting access to those, um, the, to the people that um, bring your project to television or cable television. So um, they would just let their ideas sit on the back burner as opposed to just going forth and shooting it. So I started my uh, web series specifically because um, YouTube provided a platform for people to see my content. Um, so that's mainly what was my objective. Okay, and Sasha, now, last but not least, why was it important for you to create your own media? Hello. Um, as Danielle said, I really feel like open representation is really important, especially now that we're everyone's trying to break down walls. Um, for me, it was just about making sure that other people can see that we are intelligent. 
we are normal, quote unquote normal. We're not um, these stereotypes that people have portrayed us for so long. Um, so it's really important for, like I said, for everyone to see that, you know, we can build our own and we can represent for our own. Um, it's just going to take a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of hard work. And if we do it just on our own first, then I feel like um, other people will start to pick up on that and we'll build together as a community. Excellent. So I want to ask you guys to talk about your series because I know people are listening right now and they're, they're hearing what you guys got to say and they're probably excited to know what you guys have produced. They heard you mention some of the web series that you guys have worked on. But in terms of you guys really getting into the plot and the story about what you guys have created, they don't they might not know. So, Danielle, why don't we start with you? Tell us a little bit about the web series that you've worked on and maybe you have some other projects as well. Okay, um, I'll start with 3030, since that is the forefront, really, of my life right now. Um, 3030 is a sitcom on a streaming service entitled Reverie, which has been coined by Light Logo and all these different places as the queer Netflix. It is a streaming service that is strictly catered to the LGBTQIA um, community. So my series is about two black lesbians who are best friends. One of them just recently got divorced. The other one has been heartbroken since college. They live together and they're 30 and they're trying to live. And it's based off of my best friend and I and things that we had gone through when we were younger. And it just took all of the things together and made it this just hilariously funny six episode first season. Um, as far as Girls Just Don't Do That, that is based off of the book entitled Girls Just Don't Do That, that is written by this amazing author, um, Natalie Simone. That is completely on YouTube as well. Um, it's just about different friends and different things that people don't really realize happen in lesbian relationships, like highlighting more so domestic violence, highlighting, you know, the straight girl that wants to mess with a girl but don't want the world to really know that she's messing with girls so she's masculine with dealing with men as well, and the pain and the different things that go along with that. So both shows are on completely, totally different spectrums, but they both highlight a lot of things in the community that people don't see. People don't really realize how normal it is. They they almost demonize being a black lesbian. The mainstream media has made a black lesbian this rough, dark, drug dealer almost type of person. And when I watch it, I see these lesbians that I don't recognize. They're not in my circle. They're not my friends. They're not even me. And then the more feminine people that they put in these roles they don't represent me either. So when I came together, especially when I created 3030, my main goal was for people outside of my community, even if for the white male, to see it and be able to relate and laugh and not just see lesbians on the screen. So have you got any pushback about your web series? How was your web series received? Um, 3030, as far as that platform is concerned, is doing amazing. 3030, you know, we're preparing for season two, and everybody that has seen it has loved it. The only issue people have had is the length, and we did it shorter on purpose because in the event it wasn't well received, we didn't waste a lot of money. Girls just don't do that. You know, the YouTube audience is different. The YouTube audience is that's a whole different culture. So we have, it has over 500,000 views on one of the episodes alone. And out of those views, we probably got 2,000 dislikes. You know, people are very critical on YouTube. They have, you you would think that these people all own their own businesses and they are all out there doing the same thing that you're doing. Everybody is a critic. 
but the majority of the people loved it because of the reality of it. So for those 2,000 haters out there, was it more about the content <laughs> in, in terms of you know lesbian lifestyle or was it something else? We run into a lot of that. Though. I have a film entitled Kisses in the Wind that is also on YouTube, and it's about religion and lesbianism. And people got on there just to just take it down and just, oh, my God, you are going to hell, you're biased, you're this, you're that. So all the Bible thumpers, everybody, anybody that has a problem with anything that can hide behind a computer is on YouTube. Got it. So, Even if they feel like it should have been more white people on the show. You know, it's just it, they, they hide behind that and they say anything that they want to say. It's about everything. Got it. So, Brandon, I know you created the Bad Web Series. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so Bad Web Series actually came from my work on DC Yuppies, uh, the web series. I started that one first, and we did two seasons on YouTube. Um, and what that one was actually a dramedy that just followed a group of friends. It was a scripted um, scripted show. Followed a group of friends from the uh, Washington, D.C. metro area, and it just talked about their friendships and relationships and dating and um, living, just living in the DMV. Um, I, I felt like a lot of people have not seen that, or if they have, they haven't seen it in a while. So I tried to give um, a peek into the life of the the group of friends in the, the mid to late 20s, early 30s, and just to show what the what, what it's like living in the DMV and happy hours. And um, we're kind of, I guess we people say we're kind of cliquish, so I tried to show that in the show as well. Um, but from some of that, I learned a lot of production lessons. That was my first show, my first um, my first web series, and I learned a lot of a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. So I took those lessons and kind of made bad web series, which is a a play on itself. It's a comedy or a parody that um, there is a there is a plot, but there's a subplot that shows like the different things that happen behind the scenes. So we looked at other web series. We looked at um, what happened within DC Yuppies and took those those situations and actually put it into the plot. So, for example, I know all of us have worked on series where you call action and your characters are going through the scene and somebody in the background, for some reason, forgot to silence their phone. So now you have that take. Now, normally, you would cut that, that phone out, but we would do stuff like that on purpose and leave it in and have the characters react to the phone ringing. So it's stuff like that or where a character shot one scene one day and they were supposed to have that same outfit on the next day and they forgot to bring it. So now you're trying to figure yeah. out how to write around that. Well, we left it in and the audience actually loved like seeing stuff like that. So we're, we're playing on ourselves, but it's the show for the content creator and it's the show for the avid web series watcher that catches stuff like, catches stuff like that. And, and I watched that series and it was very funny. Um, I thought it was very creative. I haven't seen Thanks. anything like that out there. So, kudos to you for that so we're going to go to miss sasha i know your series has not come out yet but just tell us a little bit about what you shot so far yeah so it's about a black woman who turns 25 and she's having a midlife crisis she is actually from phoenix arizona and she moves to new york city um to work for a startup and she she's into behavioral marketing so she it basically just analyzes consumer behavior behaviors. So like Facebook, like if you go on a website, pretty much, let's say you go on Fashion Nova 
and you go off of Fashion Nova and go on Facebook and you see that there's ads all over the place for Fashion Nova. Like, they're just tracking, like, your behavior on, like, what you go on and, like, try to get you to buy it. So that's what she's supposed to analyze. Um, it's basically, it's like a drama comedy and it's just about, like, self-awareness and about dealing with things that most people kind of repress on the low and she's kind of dealing with um, grieving. Her dad passed away. Um, after she graduated college, she never got a chance to deal with that. And then she kind of um, ignores her mom, and that relationship is a little bit broken. So it's just about exploring different sides of people's personalities and things that they kind of hold back that they need to really address first before they can really move on with their lives. So, and it's also about other people too. Like, there's a woman in the series called Janice, and she's like the life coach. She's like the Jamaican with eight jobs. And she, um, she's like Sasha's confidant, and then Sky is like Sasha's best friend, and she's dealing with her own conflict where she was supposed to get married, but while she was getting fertility treatments, while being engaged, her fiance cheated on her and got the male pregnant. So there's a lot going on there. So sounds good. So, Mr. Eric, why don't you tell us about your series, Makeup and Breakup? Uh, Makeup and Breakup is. Um, millennial dating in New York City. It follows um, Blake and Brooke, um, who were once in a relationship for two years, and while he's about, to, as he's about to propose to Brooke, she breaks up with him suddenly, so he never gets to pop the question. Um, it shows how relationships um, sometimes come back into the fold. People are scared to move on, and we just follow um, about four or five different characters and their um, peaks and valleys within their relationships. Um, so. I got the inspiration. I used to live in New York City for about nine years, in Harlem specifically, and just showing how um, because the city moves so fast and life is just going and everybody's trying to um, pursue a career, people don't fight for love anymore. It's um, specifically like with social media, it's kind of like if we break up, I can just move on to the next person. And that's what I was starting to see as I lived in New York City. Um, you did have some success stories with people actually making it. You had people who come to New York City, um, ended up hating the city and just moving back home just so they could have a normal lifestyle. Um, so those are the things that I tried to um, group together within the series. And right now we're on our second season. Excellent. So I want to bring in a new creator into our conversation. Roger, can you introduce yourself and then go into talking about the series that you created and what that's all about. Hi, everyone. Um, yes, so I created um, two series. One was called Finding Me, the series, and that was a spinoff from the two films that I did, Finding Me and Finding Me Truth. Um, that lasted two seasons, and then I've done a spinoff series from that called the Decalogue uh, a Finding Me Story, which is an anthology story. So there are several chapters. Each chapter has parts, and each part equals an episode. So chapter one is entitled Talks With Myself, and there's parts one, two, and three, and four that are out right now that we've, we've aired. And chapter two is called James and Danielle, which hasn't aired yet. We're still filming that right now. But it's a story that... Um, that follows the lives of um, the characters that were supporting characters in the Finding Me series and now we spotlight on their lives and um, each chapter is very different but it's all in one big world so I've, I've basically created a, an entire kind of universe in a sense um, from the Finding Me films that have now done spun off from all of these characters that were introduced in that series 
So I watched um, some of the Finding Me series, and it's a very good series. I've worked with one of your actresses, uh, Camille Rogers, that you have on the series as well. Um, I know your series and Danielle's series have a connection because it's dealing with gay content. Um, and Danielle talked about some of the hate that she got from people online because of gay content. Um, have you experienced anything like that? When we were on YouTube, which was season one, we experienced that, but very, my experience was very little in terms of the comments that we got because most of the comments we were getting um, were more positive, mainly because, okay, so I did two films, and then when we started the series, it was really supposed to be an experiment. So we, we released three episodes just to see what people thought of the series because we knew a lot of people didn't see the movies because the movies were... Um, uh, distributed by TLA releasing, and they didn't really, their, uh, their, let's just say their advertisement team really didn't push the series, uh, the movies that well. So the experiment was to see if people would watch the series that would want to then watch the movies. We had no idea that it was going to take off the way it did because it started off as like mini-sodes, that's what I called them at first. So like seven-minute episodes. And the comments that we were getting were, Oh, I want more. I want it to be longer. So then we started changing, developing the, the episodes to be a lot, lo- a lot longer for um, that audience. But as she said before, with YouTube, you have a bunch of people with, um, you know, internet courage, meaning you don't see their face, but they can just type whatever they want. Uh, but I, I, I will be honest. I don't remember a lot of the negative comments. There were more negative comments. Um, later, after we moved away from YouTube and we left the episodes on there for a while. But when the initial air dates on YouTube, I didn't really see a lot of those negative comments. Uh, That was my experience. And I I know Danielle has a a whole bunch of positive comments, way more positive than negative. But we were just kind of discussing what the negative comments were like um, in terms of the gay lifestyle. I know Danielle's series deal more with the female and yours deals more with the male. Um, so it's just an interesting mm-hmm. you know, thing going on with that. But everybody needs to check out both series um, so you can get an idea of what's going on with that. So I want to move this into a different direction. I want to talk about YouTube, Vimeo, and some of the paid platforms that are out there. So for our creators who have web series or are thinking about creating web series but want to monetize, um, Danielle, what direction can they go into when it comes into monetizing their content? It honestly depends on, I know money is important, but who your target audience is. Because I said, as I said earlier, you know, the YouTube culture, this cult phenomenon that we've created in YouTube is a totally different audience than the audience that's going to pay for a monthly subscription on something else. And what I learned switching platforms was I have this extremely large YouTube following, the craziness of it. Um, they call us celebrities because they, there's this cult following that they follow each web series and they follow the characters, they follow the writers, they like become consumed with this, what they think is reality. But they ain't that consumed because once you got to pay for 99 a month, which is what happened when we moved 30-30 to Reverie and never put it on YouTube, the views went from a million to a thousand. You know, things like that happened. 
So it really depends on what your ultimate goal is. If you want immediate, let's do it. Go ahead and get on YouTube. Once you get to that number, you're going to make money, but YouTube is going to take 50%. You know, so it, it really depends on what you really want to do. Vimeo as well. These are very, very well-known platforms. These are platforms where people sit down on a day-to-day basis and look for web series. There are people who do nothing else with their time but want to watch web series and will watch every web series that's out. So if you just want to be seen, do it. But if you're looking for more of a long-term, more of a building situation, you're looking for a place to go and grow, then you look for the, you know, you try and get on things like Amazon Prime, which has Amazon Direct, and you can upload it yourself. You don't have to get approved. You upload it, and then if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it. Like we have, we're on Reverie. You get on Reverie. People have to get on there and subscribe to be able to watch it. You have ways to get on Netflix, and even though there has to be a demand there's still a way to go around that and be in a place where it is considered, quote-unquote, reputable to be. So it really depends on what you want out of your story and how you want it to be presented. All right. And, Roger, what was your experience with the uh, subscription base? Um, Exactly kind of what Danielle said. When we were on YouTube, our fan base was huge. Uh, Then when we realized that YouTube, in a sense, is uh, raping us. And when I say that, it, we put our, our ideas, we put our stories, we put um, all of our actors and everything on that platform, and you, kinda, you kind of get this feeling that there are a lot of people that are watching it, those with the money, that can then take your idea and produce it with their budget. When we realize that is when we move to our own... Um, platform, uh, which is called Omi Pro TV, and um, basically we, we uh, it's a pay-per-view per kind of uh, channel. So if you buy an episode, our episodes are $1.99 for download or $1.50 to rent. The amount of viewers did not translate from YouTube to the website. And in the beginning, it was disheartening, but you, you begin to realize there are people who are w- wanting to see something for free, and that's one fan base. But then you you see there's that loyal fan base that wants the content, that wants to follow the story, and those are the ones that will are willing to pay. And there was one point I had to put up a notice. We had to uh, literally like, write a letter for the fans because some people were saying, Oh, I can't afford this. I can't afford that. Which is true. I'm not saying that you can't. I'm not. I'm not in anyone's pocket. But it's interesting how people are willing to support one thing, or, or even the mainstream shows, because everything is for sale, or everything you're paying for. People think something is on there for free, so I don't have to pay for it. Well, you're paying for your cable subscription. You're paying for whether it be Hulu or Netflix or whatever. So why why is it that you can't pay for content for uh, a community that you're a part of? And that uh, that has always baffled me. But I have not looked back since creating um, the website in terms of going back to YouTube. I've I've never thought, oh, I should go back to YouTube because I don't think that it benefits those of us who are creating content with quality and and trying to create and uh, um, garner a viewership. I think it's it's very necessary for anyone out there who's trying to create their own series. You should start in the beginning, maybe just to get like a, a test, a taste test in a sense of what 
may be like, but eventually you will want to go on your own platform or whatever platform is willing to help you um, monetize your product. Sounds good. So I want to move the conversation to financing and I want to bring that to Brandon. So Brandon, um, Roger talked about the money. Um, you know, we Danielle talked about the money. There's cost to put together these productions. And at the end of the day, while we want to entertain and we want to get our faces and our voices out there, we do want to reap some benefits from the hard work that we're putting in and from the money that we put out. So what is your experience when it comes to financing your web series? Um, are you doing it to turn a profit? Have you turned a profit? Just give us an overview of what that's like for you. Well, for, when I did uh, DCFD season one, I was really kind of on my own, so to speak. I had to put everything up, out of pocket up front. Um, but then I did um, a crowdfunding. I did Indiegogo, and that helped to, to raise some additional money to kind of offset some of those costs. Um, season one was a little difficult just as far as fun, uh, financing because here I am, a new, a new writer, a new creator. No one's heard of me. So it's like, why should we take a chance on you? Um, family and friends were a big part of the support system. And then the, uh, from there, they would reach out to other people and let them know, hey, I have um, a friend that or a family member that's doing something cool. Why don't you check it out? Check out the trailer if it's something you're interested in. Um, maybe you could support. So that, that went a long way. Season two was a lot better because I had one season under my belt. Um, people were able to see a product, see what, what direction I was going in. And from there, I linked up with someone who was able to consult with a list of their clients and um, provide sponsorship. Um, sponsorship is one of the, the better ways, I think, to go about it. I think it's a little harder, but I think if, you, if you're successful at it, it's one of the better ways to go because it's pretty much free money just to show off someone's product or um, someone's skill. So, for example, we had um, a scene where the the cast had they were having like a, a Thanksgiving with just the just the um the cast members and we had a cook or we had a chef that was willing to um tell people that he had a new catering business. All he wanted to do was cook for us and what we did was while the um while the cast was making their plates we would just show off the food and at the beginning we gave him like a ten second commercial with his contact information. So um it just you know we helped each other out. So I think that was that was definitely, um, you know, the best way to go. As of now, or back then, I wasn't really looking for a profit. It was more so how to promote Brandon the writer or Brandon's ideas. So um, profit, even though, it, I mean, of course it was a loss, but it was a gain as far as putting myself out there, um, you know, getting people to know what what type of writing I was I was doing, what type of projects I was doing. So it was a way of promoting myself. I didn't really think of it as money, but of course the end goal is, how can we turn this into a profitable experience? And that's what I'm working on now is moving from, okay, people know what I am or who I am, what I'm about, but how can we move that into something that's profitable? Okay. And Eric, can you add to that? What was your experience like in terms of financing your projects and are you doing it to turn a profit? If so, did you turn a profit? Um, so my experience was, it was okay. I say for, um, I would say roughly about two years to finance my project. Um, it wasn't expensive, but it wasn't cheap at all. Um, I did it mainly because, you know, my end goal was to break into the writer's room. And people will always ask you, like, what do you have? Can I see something? Like, what kind of content do you have? So it, it, was, it, it worked for me because it went from 
me being able to have something that was tangible because people would, I would say they wouldn't doubt you in the beginning, but they're just kind of like, oh, okay, everybody has an idea, everybody has a vision, but how can you execute? So when we came out with the first season to make it a breakup, it kind of changed the narrative. Like, um, we would go to a lot of film festivals, um, make a lot of contacts, and people were starting to be more receptive because they're like, okay, this kid, he, he kind of has something. Um, so from my perspective, I think that um, YouTube worked for me as far as like recuperating funds. Um, not really, you know, YouTube, you can get some money when you put sponsorships in front of your videos, but it's really not anything. YouTube kind of reached everybody that's known. Um, so it just depends on what your end goal is. Are you doing it to get exposure for your writing? Are you doing it to maybe get a network deal? Um, I think that's the vision that you kind of got to go with. But if you're looking to make a profit off of YouTube, you have to have like millions of views to turn any type of profit and it's still not going to add up to the money that you probably put into the project. So. Um, so far, so good. Um, we'll see how it pans out. Okay, so I want to move this conversation to casting and characters. I'm going to start with Sasha. Um, when you create your stories and you're thinking about the characters and you're thinking about our people and people of color, does any of that play into how you cast? And if so, why and how? And when it comes to social issues that are going on in our communities, um, do your characters kind of, does your thinking play into how we are portrayed in real life? I know somebody mentioned how we're portrayed on TV and the stereotypes and that kind of thing. So as a creator, maybe I'm thinking, well, I don't want to portray that stereotype. So I'm specifically casting something different. Or is it, hey, I'm just casting what I feel and it is what it is. So hopefully you can... Uh, put that all together manage that Sasha but what is it like for you when it comes to creating characters and casting characters yeah um I feel like intention is really important and purpose the intention and purpose behind casting is really important um this is my first web series so casting was extremely hard because I didn't know people like that so I had to depend on like third-party um websites to find people like model mayhem has been a little tricky but I've learned to work through that um but when I'm writing I'm thinking about the best representation possible like making sure that everyone has speaking lines to some extent making sure that everyone is being represented in the best way possible where people can see them in a positive light opposed to a negative light where it's like okay we've seen this already like you know so my my intention is always to make sure that everyone is represented the best way possible in a very positive light. Like if, if they're in, um, like let's say the character has a profession, I make sure that gets highlighted. I make sure if they have a degree that gets highlighted or whatever they're doing um, to be a positive um, member of society, I make sure that's, that's, um, that gets highlighted. So I don't really think about, well, let's make her the angry black woman or let's let's do this, let's do that. I think there's always a way to, like, if you need someone to be a certain way, even if it's in a negative light, you can still turn it and make it positive where people can still respect it and not be like, okay, we've seen that stereotype before. All right, sounds good. So I want to bring this question as well to Danielle. Um, Danielle, I know when you're casting content that is um, the gay lifestyle content, um, is it hard to find experienced actors or are you casting people who are friends? Like, what is your process with that? And also, are you conscious about what's going on with the gay community and the stereotyping that goes on with that? Does that play into how you write and how you create your characters? 
So it depends on which project, you know, like with 3030, a lot of that was because so many web series were so heavy. They were so dark about all the negative, all the bad, all these other things that were happening. So when I was writing it, yeah, we touched on some of it, but it wasn't, it's a happy place. 3030 is is just a happy, silly place to be. So I didn't want that to be heavy, but on other projects, yes, we touched on things like transitioning and things that are very important in today's society, things that are on the forefront. As far as casting is concerned, and I've been doing this now for, what, six years. So I do use third party. I do have a, you know, Rolodex of actresses, actors. It just depends on what I'm looking for. There are projects where I handpick actors. There are projects when I put a, hair, a casting call out and I see what comes from it. But it's always about, you know, I'm a writer first. That's Regardless of what else I do, I'm a writer first. And when I'm writing, it's about the story. So it's about how this particular character will bring out this particular part of the story. Or if this one character, even if it's only on in one scene, one line, how important that character is going to be or if it's even needed. So it's, it's so many different factors when it comes to that. It just depends on the project and what, what your goal is. Like everything always the ultimate thing is what you want to do with this. Do you want good actors or do you want your friends? Like it just depends on what you want to do. So, Eric, I'm going to throw that question to you. How does that relate for you when you're casting your characters? Is it like Danielle said, it's first and foremost, it's about the story I want to create. I'm not necessarily thinking about what's going on in society per se or do you constantly think about how we are portrayed in the media and how you may want to make it a little different within your story, but still not losing the story that you want to create? Um, I think casting, that's like my niche. Like, that's something that I like to do. So I don't do like the untraditional casting. Spend our casting calls, have a whole bunch of people come in and they um, just see them perform whatever monologue. Uh, with me, it's more. It's a little bit different because I feel like sometimes when I started, I would do casting calls and I would sit there for like an hour searching for like a specific character and I wouldn't get it. So when I got somebody that was half decent, I would get excited thinking that they were this amazing actor and then only to figure out that they're okay. Like, you know what I mean? So I pretty much um, cast off a reel. Um, I like to see people in different lights and different, like see how far they can go, how far they can stretch. Um, their artistic approach, or I may give them a monologue. And if I see something there, I kind of work with them. I think that casting is key. Um, I, when I was in high school, I went to a performing arts high school. Undergrad, I, went, I studied television production. So you start to see that it's not just about recite lines. Acting is an art form. People literally leave their homes in the middle of the Midwest or anywhere in the country just to come to New York to study acting. So I understand that, and I take that, and I try to find people that, you know what I mean, are serious about their craft. So... I would say about 70% of my actors come from acting school. Um, Susan Batson acting school in New York City. Um, they take classes, Delhi, and those are the people that I like. I want to attract because those people, like you know, what I mean, they give it their all, and they're all out here just trying to achieve this one dream of making it. So that's kind of like the approach that I take when I cast. Um, as far as writing character, um, I just want it to be real narrative and just realistic. Um, I really focus on character development within my series, um, so I try not to do everything for shock value. So a lot of my favorite shows are Queen Sugar or This Is Us because they spend a lot of time focusing on character development. Um, if you're a good writer, you can get your point across. You don't have to just show somebody <clears> getting shot so everybody can be left with a cliffhanger. You can kind of like write some good dialogue where people can still be intrigued. So that's one of the things that my show targets. It's all about like monologues and giving each character a time to shine because in the end, 
I want them to be able to take parts of the show and show it to somebody and say, this is what I've done. Um, either can you can I get a job off of this or can you work with me based upon um, the potential that you see within my acting ability? So that's the kind of standpoint that I take. Sounds good. So for people who may be tuning in now, I want you guys to understand that we're talking about creating our own films as black filmmakers, as black film creators and why that's important. But I also want people to understand the process of what our filmmakers go through, um, the steps that they have to take to get that project out there. Once that project's out there, what are they doing next with the project? And then where do they go next as filmmakers? Um, Do they continue the process or do they kind of stop because financially it might be a little difficult? Um, so we want to give you guys a little tidbits of everything, the kind of the whole overview of what it's like to be a filmmaker. So I want to move this next question to Roger. And I want to talk about the equipment. Um, I know you st- you've you been doing web series for a while, so you may have started with certain equipment in the beginning. Then maybe you got some money and or maybe you became more knowledgeable about other equipment that may be more beneficial to the production. So maybe you switched over. So what is that process like when you're looking for a DP for your camera work, a sound mixer, sound operator, and you're looking for your lighting? Um, or were you doing it yourself with your friends? And then when things kind of picked up, you was able to get a crew. Um, take us from point A to point B in terms of what that experience was like for you. Okay, so when I did uh, season one of Finding Me, I did mainly all the production myself. So I was the writer, producer. I was the videographer, the DP. I was the editor. Um, I used my own lighting equipment that I purchased uh, from a store here in New York called B&H, which is, if you're a filmmaker, it's your Toys R Us because you just, everything is in there is what you want. Can't afford it. <laughs> um, so as you're, as we were uh, releasing the episodes, um, they were decent. They were they were okay looking. But the most important equipment that I think any filmmaker should have is sound, because sound can either amplify or distract from the story. And all of us in the filmmakers, we don't necessarily have a budget for a studio or to lock down a location. So you're oftentimes filming in working places, and so the sound has is is, is key because if you're in say a cafe that's actually working, they're usually uh, playing music. If they're, you know, nice enough, they can turn that off. But there's people coming in. There's that uh, the espresso machines that's going on in and off, or on and off. You want the sound to be able to not pick that up, so that you don't lose the story and the dialogue. So, season one again was an experiment, and I learned a lot more in terms of what I can and cannot do with the limitations of the budget that I have. Um, when we got to the end of season one, we saw the feedback we were getting from the audience, but most importantly, we also saw other shows being um, released. Because um, when we, when I released Finding Me, the series, that was back in 2012, so there weren't as many web series as there are now. So when we saw other web series coming up and seeing what other people are doing and what they were focusing on, it challenged me to change my art as well. So when season two came around, I realized as the writer and director, I cannot wear that many hats. So we did hire a DP. Uh, his name is Frankie Harley Jr. And with that, I was able to release um, one aspect of it and, and kind of put it on his reins. And I was able to look at the story from another view. So it was important 
to try to find someone who can align with your vision and amplify it that much more in terms of the vision. So at the end of the day, if you have a good script and you have a good cast and a, a good story, that's really the, and the main things that you need. But you, again, want the other aspects to amplify the story that you're telling. So the DP then can, can focus on um, a great shot in terms of an angle that when you're watching the story and you see you can, in terms of editing, you can cut to a wider angle so you can see the breadth of where the characters are and, and that adds to the story. That's the reasons why you have a DP. Some people tend to lose themselves in, oh, I, want it, I want it to look like this, and it doesn't add to the story at all, having a certain angle. The angles and all of those uh, uh, new things should add should only add to the story. So, you know, you get, especially when you're dealing with black people, we come in different shades, all of us. And so you want to be able to light them differently. And you can use little tricks in terms of filters, uh, filters for the lenses. Or, you know, even like uh, there's this thing called the silver board where it's, it's silver on one side, it's white on the other. And that can um, bounce the light from the sun onto the actor so that you have the different shades to complement the, the actor's complexion. Those are little uh, uh, things that you can get that are affordable, that you just need to learn how to play around with, but you do need to experiment with them when you're on set. So I think the equipment um, aspect of it, it can get daunting because a lot of it is expensive, but there's a lot of tricks, a lot of uh, things that you can do on your own that can amplify the story as well. Excellent. So I want to take that question to Brandon as well. Um, what equipment were you using then when you first started out? Where are you now? And tell us a little bit about the camera equipment as well. It's uh, interesting. So when I started with DC Yuppies, I actually worked with um, a friend that posted a picture of their camera online when I was looking for uh, looking for DPs and um, a crew. He posted a picture of his camera and I just started from there. I just messaged him and said, Hey, I didn't know that you were, you were in there filming. And from there we, um, we got a contract together. He brought his equipment over and, um, he and the rest of his crew became, became my crew for DC Yuppies. Um, I, I had never used the camera. That was my first show. That was my first time, you know, seeing the, the amount of equipment, the amount of time it takes to set up everything. And, um, they, they pretty much did everything. They did the sound, but they gave me some experience, you know, holding the camera so I could gain ex- uh, experience that way. So I learned through them, but they pretty much took on everything, the the sound, the lighting, the the filming. They did they did it all. And the only thing I had to be there for was to, to help with editing. Um, and now with Bad Web Series, because it's intentionally a bad web series, and this doesn't mean that just because Someone else may be using this method too. That um, their method is bad, but we took everything um, as far as that we put towards the the production side, as far as equipment, and we trimmed all of that to put towards our our um, our budget as far as the the actual story and the the different post production costs. So our film crew right now consists of two to three people using um, their iPhones. Um, the quality actually looks 
as good as we wanted it to. Um, the cameras are clear enough that the, the images don't look like, oh, you shot this on a phone. Like, it actually, it looks good. Um, the sound, like you were talking about, we can actually edit that out based on um, iMovie or, or Final Cut. So we use, we use like, the, the basic stuff just to make sure that our stories are being told. Um, we don't want to say, oh, you can't afford this, so you have to hold that story um, you know, for another year or, another, or two years, we have the equipment that, that we need to make our show what we want it to come out as. And since this is a parody about the web series experience, you know, sometimes that angle may be off and we may say, hey, that, that actually works for what we're trying to do here. Let's leave it in. Or, I mean, if it's if it too bad, then we'll say, you know, we got to do it again. But I think for the purposes of bad web series, um, the iPhones have been working really well. And then we also have our own lighting. So, it's been it's been working well for us, and um, I think for anyone that you know, like you said, already is talented enough to have um, good script, good actors, um, a good storyline, um, and you're trying to make sure that story comes out, but you may not have the the financial backing to push it. If you're skilled at what you, if you're already skilled enough to know how to how to operate a camera, um, I think that you should go ahead and you know, try see what your maybe try a short film on the iPhone and see how it comes out. And if it's, you know, something that you're pleased with, then I would say go ahead and move forward. All right. Sounds good. So I want people to get some specifics out there because I know the first question people always ask is what camera do you use? What camera do you use? So Danielle, for your last project, what camera did you guys use for that production? I'm not even going to lie to you. I don't have those type of answers. (laughs) I have no idea. I don't, I try not to even, get involved in that because I don't know anything about it. I have a DP. He works for Fox. He has a, I know he has a red and he has something else. And then there was this Canon camera that he used that like looked like a bubble. I have no idea what they use. I don't ask them type of questions. As long as it looks good, I'm good. All right. So if it looked like a bubble, he was probably on a C100, C200, 300, 500, something like that. The red camera is a really good camera as well. If you can get your hands on a red camera to create your web series, um, you're starting at a good place in terms of uh, video quality. Um, So I want to move on to the next thing, which is the last thing, which is marketing and promotion. Um, So a lot of us film these web series and we feel great about it, but then nobody sees it because it's like uh, Roger talked about. There's a lot of competition out there with the web series. Um, people are doing things with their cell phones and just throwing them up. And sometimes the story is funny or creative. People dismiss the little things like sound and maybe slightly bad lighting, but the story is funny. So people kind of watch it. Um, it's a lot of competition. So once our web series are done, our films are done and we want to get it out to the masses. We want people to see it. We want to get feedback. What is that process like? And I'm going to give that question to Eric. Hopefully, Eric's still on the line. If not, let's go to Roger. Roger, what is the marketing process like for you? Well, that is a a well-kept secret that I'm still trying to figure out, to be honest with you. Um, In terms of marketing, I would say if you do have a budget, that's where the bulk of your budget would have to go because you're trying to reach an audience that doesn't know you're there. And especially if you step away from YouTube, which is a free market, let's say, um, how will they know to look for your, your show 
in a field filled with different shows. And you're competing. You're not just competing with other web series. You're competing with mainstream series. Um, so for every Finding Me, there's someone who's watching Queen Sugar, and they feel as though, oh, I get everything I need to get from this show. Why do I need to take the time out to watch your 10-minute, half-hour, or seven-minute show? So I've I've really been scratching my head to the point that I'm bald, which I'm not, but um, trying to figure out how to get this marketing um, game up because it is very difficult. Um, so I say that the best way is to um, – you know, get a budget together for a marketing team. And, and, and it's very important that as we are filmmakers and we have indie, indie filmmakers, we have to wear many hats. That's just a part of the game, part of the deal. It's sometimes important that you relinquish control. And that is very hard for us because it is our babies. It is our vision. We don't want someone just manipulating or taking it or moving it in the wrong direction. But there are times where you do have to put your trust into someone else with it, you know, with the guide of your hand, of course, you're always watching something. You're not just walking away because you're always involved. But let someone else take control if they have that background and let them do that so that you can concentrate on doing the filming aspects or what the writing aspects or directing, whatever your, 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 um, your zhuzh is in terms of um, creating it. So marketing-wise, what I've done um, – released a lot of clips on Instagram, but it's funny, social media can be a tricky thing. I call them phantom audiences in the sense that it takes nothing for them to click a like button, but does that like translate into them going to your website to then clicking and actually purchasing or watching your episode? So that's, again, why it's so tricky for me because I can get a whole lot of likes on Instagram from a bunch of people I don't know but that doesn't always translate to them actually watching and viewing and purchasing. So I hate to sit here and not give you an answer, but it is a puzzling question that I've still not been able to um, get a clear answer on in terms of being an indie filmmaker and making a web series. All right. Um, Eric's call had dropped. Eric, is this you back on the line? No, I cannot hear you. Oh, okay. uh, try to call back at the other number if you can. Let's see what happens with that. Can you hear me now? No. Alright, so we're gonna move that question on to Danielle. Um, Danielle, what has your promotion marketing experience been like for your projects? To be honest, my answer is almost the same. It's touch and go. Like, even with having a network such as Reverie, who has their own marketing project, they have their own whole, they have a whole marketing department, but they use social media as well, and they got the same type of reaction we got. So it depends on, like, my fan page for 3030 has 3,000 or 4,000-something followers, and they get all these likes, but does that mean they watch the show? Because then it takes more, like, the modern person is so lazy because DoubleClick keeps scrolling. But to watch the show, I have to double-click, then I have to click on the page, and then I have to click on the link, and then I have, they have the nerve to ask me to subscribe, too. So it's almost like, but I just, I dropped a movie um, October 8th on Facebook. That movie in a week got more views on Facebook than the things that total 
on my entire YouTube page. And Facebook gives you the um, insights, the demographics of what you, well, who watched it, who watched the full thing, who watched half of it, who watched three seconds of it. And on Facebook, because people are sitting there doing that anyways, with the whole movie playing, out of the 6,000 and some changed views that we got at that very moment, 5,000 of them watched the entire film. So it's just kind of like it's touch and go. It depends on who, what, where, how. We try. Of course, we do all types of social media marketing. They have the ability to boost posts. They have all these different things. You talk to people word of mouth. You know, you use cast members that have their own following. You do whatever you can to get as many eyes on it. But it's all about who is actually going to take that extra step to hit play. All right. So, Sasha, I know your web series has not come out yet, and this is going to be your first web series. You heard from Roger and Danielle talk mm-hmm. about what their experience is like in terms of marketing and promoting the project that they have. Um, so listening to that and kind of having your own idea about what you're going to do, what is your plan when it comes to promoting your first web series? Um, yeah, so um, I used to do um, web design and I used to do a lot of analytics, not for Google specifically, but I understood like how it works for small businesses. I used to freelance. So as as they said, it's touch and go. It depends on what, what platform you're on and what you're trying to really achieve. Like for Facebook, people have very short attention spans. For YouTube, people have very short attention spans. And I guess you just have to pick just a couple of platforms because that's what I'm trying to do right now is just pick a few platforms and then go based off of that and just really study it first and, like, see how people react to things and just ask people that you actually know, like, how – like when you say watch a YouTube video, do you watch three minutes of it? Do you watch this? Or if you go to an Instagram page, what is going to compel you to like something and then go to their website? Or what's going to compel you to subscribe to certain things? So like they said, it's touch and go, but I think it's just doing a lot of research and picking just maybe two or three platforms to work off of. And then as you build your team, then you can kind of just launch it any way you want and including budgeting too. So. All right. So we got about five minutes left in the program. And I want to touch on two more topics. One, I want you guys to be able to promote what's coming up next. Um, We want to do that last. But the first thing I want you to do is give advice um, to our young African-American, Afro-Latino filmmakers out there who just kind of started or who want to start becoming filmmakers. Um, What advice would you give them? And I'll start with Brandon. My advice is always to not get discouraged comparing yourself to others who may be in a place that you aspire to be. I think as a creator, you always see someone who may have the subscribers or may have the views or may have the the backing or the, the buzz that you want. And you may not be there right away, but you have to remember that it's, it's, there's a, there's a, a starting point for everyone. So you may not have it now, but if you take it as seriously as they took it and you believe that this is your, your passion, you're going to put everything into it, and you will have it one day. Um, so that was, that, I know, especially for me, I would always get a little discouraged. But, um, yeah, everyone has a starting point. And I've, even, I've seen it myself. I've seen how I've gone from, like, no one following to people, you know, checking in on YouTube saying, when's the next season or when's the next episode? So it makes you it makes you feel good to know someone's out there checking for you. So just remember that um, everybody has a starting point, and your starting point doesn't have to be your ending point if that's, you know, if you treat it seriously. Okay. Danielle, what advice would you have for upcoming filmmakers? 
my advice is do it. Don't you have, you can't be reserved and have a goal. That's not how this works. You have to be fearless in in your point. You have to be fearless in wanting your story told. You can't be scared of what they're gonna think. You can't be scared of who gonna watch it. You can't be scared that nobody is gonna watch it. You have to have enough confidence of what you're gonna do to know that somebody is gonna care. Even if one person is changed, that's one person that didn't have your story in their lives. And we're in a time and place where we don't need anything. As the young man said on the phone. People are filming with cell phones. They have film festivals that are totally restricted to people who only use iPhones. In 2017, all you have to do is have a story and a vision. All the rest of that stuff is null and void. Do it. Sasha, what advice would you give to new filmmakers who want to break into the industry? Um, Just start and do not be afraid to make mistakes. And just, I'm having a hard time dealing with not being perfectionist, but just take that out of the equation and just as you go, it's just muscle memory and it's just building on prior knowledge. That's really important. So you just have to do as much as you can so you can just really gain as much knowledge as you can and share, always share. Excellent. And last but not least, Mr. Roger, what advice would you give to a filmmaker who's just starting out? Well, just piggybacking on everything that everyone else has just said, you can't be afraid um, to put your art out there. You also can't be afraid of once your art is out there, it's going to be interpreted differently by different people, which is, I think, the purpose of art. People walk away from what they're seeing. It may be different from what your message was, but once you've released it, it's out there. Don't be afraid of the mistakes you're going to make because that only uh, it only improves on your skills as you go forward. Always, even though you may be a perfectionist, Put the stuff out there anyway, even if it's not the level that you want it to be, because it, once you look at it, you're, the mistakes you're looking at that you know that are mistakes, a lot of people don't even realize that. So the little things that we put in, we're like, oh, this, this, they're not noticing it. It's not that they're not noticing it. They are, but they're, they're, they're more involved in the story. So just perfect your story, perfect uh, the way you make it for yourself, but do not just sit there and not release it because it is not the perfection that you think it should be. Ninety you're only seconds. doing yourself a disservice. People out there will love to see your content. There will be viewers, so just put it out there. So, guys, remember, we have a resource page on blackpillradio.com where you guys will be able to find our viewers' work, find their websites and their social media contact information so you guys can contact with them. Um, Very quickly, Danielle, what is the name of your web series? Um, I have two that are out currently, 30, 30, and 60 seconds. Say that last one again. Girls just don't do that. Okay, and what is the name of your web series, Brandon? The first one is DC Yuppies. That's on YouTube, and I'm currently releasing episodes for Bad Web Series, which is also on YouTube, every Monday at 7. Okay, and Roger, what is the name of your web series? They are Finding Me the Series and Decalogue, a Finding Me story. And Sasha, your web series has not come out yet, but what is the name of it, and when might we see it? Um, it's basic to bougie. It might be out by early December. All right. Sounds good. Thank you guys for joining the panel. I appreciate all the advice you gave to our audiences. Um, this will be replayed on iTunes, Ten seconds. Google Play, YouTube, 
Blog Talk Radio and Black Pill Radio. As always, guys, stay safe and we will see you in two weeks. Peace.